a video like that can make a service start to feel heavy. It's poignant, it's powerful, and while um, it may not be what we spend the majority of our service talking about, it is at the heart of the message, because we're going to finish with the wonderful truth that God can work in every circumstance. And honestly, your identity is not built around marital status, whether you're single or married or divorced. Our identity is found in Christ. And for those of us who are saved, we are his. We are redeemed, we are forgiven, we're clean. Because of his grace, because of who he is and who we are in him. And if you're hurting and reeling from the pain of divorce, either because of the guilt that you feel in the part that you played or simply because your feet were swept away from underneath you and you are hurting, God's grace and mercy and desire to forgive and help you to forgive is extended to you this morning. And I'm setting the tone nice and early. I would normally start, you know, with a couple of mother-in-law jokes or wife jokes or something like that, but this is a heavy subject. And for those who are going through it, it is not funny. It's not a laughing matter. And there's probably more pain in marriage and parenting than in any other walk of life. It hurts like nothing else. And yet this is the cost of covenant-making and covenant-keeping love. And so before I address the topic of what Jesus would say to someone who is divorced, let me first speak to those who are maybe considering it this morning. Hope is not found on this path. God is able to rescue and reach down into the disaster of divorce, but that is not something that we should run towards. Marriage is a serious thing. Christ himself commanded that, therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Why? Because it's covenant. God wants marriage to be a picture of our relationship with him. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. And if we begin to devalue marriage, if it's something that can come and go, we can pick up and put down whenever it is convenient for us, we destroy something that God is trying to use to teach us about himself. And when we cheapen marriage, we cheapen him. Divorce is not a remedy. And if you're considering such a step, please tell yourself these things over and over. It's not a valid option. It's not something I am going to pursue. It may still be inevitable. I may not have a choice in this, but I will pray and actively work in the opposite direction. Now you might argue, well, Jeff, you see the thing is, I went into the marriage, I was immature. I didn't go into it biblically. My response is, but that does not give you an excuse to exit it unbiblically. Christians are covenant-keeping people because we serve a covenant-keeping God. Now, of course, there are extreme examples. We would never think of telling someone who is getting beaten or whose children are getting abused to, to go back and to stay and just to put up with it. Of course not. We, would, we could spend all day giving examples and going through it all. I don't think that's a helpful way of dealing with it. But another one that Scripture does give is in Peter, First Peter, that says, like, if you get saved and your spouse being unsaved wants a divorce, says, you've changed. You know, I, I don't want a, a Christian. I don't want to be married to a Christian. You're not the person that I signed up to marry. We're told to try to make it work. Don't make it easy for them to walk away. But if they insist, so be it. 
But for the most part, for the most part, when you take away the extreme edges of it, as much as it is down to you, because we can't always control other people, but as much as it's down to you, hang in there. A crucial text for this attitude comes in Romans 5. That says, not only this, but we exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance, perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Marriage may disappoint with a thousand different tribulations, daily tribulations, but hope-filled obedience with godly character in the face of tribulations will not disappoint. That's God's promise. From these tribulations comes a Godward-facing hope, and he is sufficient in difficult times. He does not disappoint. So now that I've got that out of my system, let's go on. What would Jesus say to someone for whom it is maybe too late to save their marriage? It's been signed, sealed, it is irreconcilable, or for however many reasons, or for whoever is to blame. Marriage can often be an ideal that turns into an ordeal, which makes you look for a new deal. Um, but when people stop trying, when they give up and start finding attractions in other places, divorce is usually on the horizon. Now, I want to speak carefully this morning, but I also want to speak unapologetically this morning. This is not something that Jesus shied away from. And so I'm going to stick with what he said, if you don't mind. And I'm going to hide behind him. I'm going to hide behind the word of God. He was prepared to challenge the, pro the popular theories at the time. And to be honest, the overlap is pretty much the same. Technology changes, but people rarely do. Uh, and so we're going to be reading from Matthew 19. Uh, and the context of this is important. The Pharisees are trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're trying to get him caught between the law and the people that support him. The people that supported Jesus, remember, he was the friend of sinners. He was the friend to the prostitute and the tax collector. The people at the bottom rung on society. And very often they were the people with the loosest morals. They were often the people with the longest rap sheets. They were often the people who had the most broken relationships. And so they were trying to get Jesus to come out with a statement that is going to either make him deny the law, which is going to get him in trouble, or to uh, rile up the people who supported him and then isolate Jesus. And that's the idea. And so at verse 1, it says, When Jesus was finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea. Uh, beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Now, this means that where they are in Israel is the same part of Israel where John the Baptist has been executed. And if you remember why G uh, John the Baptist was executed, it was because he was in prison for saying to Herod, uh, you cannot have your brother's wife. Stop messing around in other people's marriages this is adultery. 
and he'd been thrown in prison. So it's a very sensitive subject in the area. The leadership of, the, of this area are listening to what Jesus is saying. Because in the same way there was consequences for John the Baptist speaking out against it, there would be consequences for Jesus also. Or at least that would be their thought. Verse 3, the Pharisees came to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And that's the key part of this, for any cause. He answered, have you not read that, the, he, that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why did Moses order it? Why was Moses giving it then if if, if it's such a big deal, Jesus? And Jesus, verse 8, said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses, not uh, not, uh, commanded, but allowed. He gave permission to different things. Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, so listen, forget about Moses. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Now, a few things then I think that Jesus would have to say to us about divorce. Number one, divorce is a common issue. In theory, the Jewish nation held marriage in the highest esteem of any other nation uh, uh, in the world at that time, certainly compared to their neighbors. They considered marriage a sacred bond, a sacred duty. But the reality was a wee bit different. The question that the Pharisees were asking is a hot potato at the time, and it stemmed from a question all the way back in Deuteronomy 24. Sorry, that's the one up on the screen. And really... uh, the first couple of verses are, are all kind of part of it, but let's just read the first verse. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, he writes a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs. So in other words, the guy decides, it's done. He just hands her a bit of paper, right? Love, there's the door. And it really circles and then, well, what qualifies as indecency? What are the boundaries that makes divorce acceptable? Now, without unpacking it all, that's the question. Jesus, what's your views? What counts as indecent? What qualifies? What doesn't? So they come to Jesus and say, look, it's okay to dump her for any reason. Why didn't Moses then give this command? Now, there's two kind of schools of thought. The first was a narrow view, a conservative view from a rabbi named uh, Rabbi Shami, S-H-A-M-M-I-E, in case you're taking notes. If you're, um, he interpreted Deuteronomy 24. He came a couple of centuries before Jesus, and he said, well, listen, that word uncleanness can only mean one thing, and one thing only is adultery. Only if, they, if there is adultery can divorce be justified. And that was his line. But then about 100 years before Jesus, there was another rabbi who had a different view. Uh, He was Rabbi Hillel, H-I-L-L-E-L. And Rabbi Hillel had a liberal view of the meaning. He sort of tried to open up. Uncleanness could be any number of things. Your wife puts too much salt in, in your dinner, that's unclean. 
I'm not making that up. He actually used that as, a, as, a, as an example in his teachings. So if she burns the bagels, doesn't prepare his meal right, makes the coffee wrong, or whatever happens to be, you're unclean, you're unworthy, I'm divorcing you. I'm going to get myself a wife that can make me a nice dinner. A quarrelsome wife. Right, get out. That's the liberal view. Now, to make matters worse then, there was a rabbi that came a wee bit after the time of Jesus, Rabbi Akiba, uh, and he widened it even further to argue that a husband who started to find another woman more attractive than his wife can divorce his wife to marry her because she becomes unclean because the shine kind of comes off the wife a little bit. You are less shining, less glamorous, less uh, wow and awe-inspiring to me now. You've kind of become a wee bit unclean, a wee bit tainted. So I'm going to go for an upgrade. Now, given those extremes, which do you think was the most popular among men at the time of Jesus? The conservative view or the liberal view? Of course, it's the liberal view. Of course, that's what they wanted. And so all you had to do to make it legal was get a bit of paper. Boom, right, you're out, you're away. And it's all based on this one line, this one we phrase in Deuteronomy 24. What does that mean? It means that at the time of Jesus, when Jesus was speaking, there was rampant, no-fault divorce taking place. There was divorce happening everywhere, and it was perfectly legal because they were using this liberal view. Even the Pharisees were dumping their wives for whatever reason that took their fancy and remarrying and remarrying. And it wouldn't have been uncommon for a Pharisee to have had maybe five, six, seven different wives. And so they asked the question, is it lawful to divorce your wife for whatever reason? Now, in this scenario, imagine what it's like being the wife. Because this, this is going to be the key part. Imagine being a wife to one of these guys. You're on eggshells the whole time. That's no way to live a life. You'd be terrified. Anytime there's a disagreement, oh, am I going to get kicked out? Is he going to come home tomorrow with a certificate of divorce? Imagine then what, what happens, these religious men walking around, swanning around, I'm without sin, I, I, I keep all the law, and yet there's these broken-hearted women being left on the street, left homeless, all around them. That's the context. It was a common problem then as it is now. I agree with whoever wrote this. There are two processes that ought never be entered into prematurely, embalming and divorce. But they were entering into divorce at the drop of a hat. So it's a practical issue that they brought up. It's happening all around them. And so Jesus is speaking to a very touchy subject. And he gives his answer, and he gives us the second characteristic. It's a biblical issue. Verse 4, his response is, I love this. Have you not heard? Jesus uses sarcasm, and that's it's just another reason to love Jesus, all right? I, I love a wee bit of sarcasm. Not everyone has the gift of interpretation, but I love a wee bit of sarcasm. And Jesus goes, have you not read? Do you not know what the Bible says? Of course they know. Of course they've read it. They've studied it. They live their life by it. But he takes them back to Genesis. These guys go back to Deuteronomy 24, and they circle this one line unclean. Well, what does it mean? Here's what I think it means. But he takes them further back. Forget Moses for a minute. 
What did God say? Now, while we're here, a couple of things that Jesus makes, says about marriage. Number one, it's God's idea. This isn't man's invention. This isn't a sociology experiment. It's not about tax breaks or about convenience. This is coming from a higher authority than even Moses. It's coming from the authority of the universe, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. This is his idea. He also said that marriage is between one man and one woman. Notice how Jesus parses his words. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And in the original language, the male and female are emphatic. One of the most dangerous things that is happening today is blurring the lines between male and female. Now, I understand we live in a free society. I rejoice in the fact that we live in a free society, a democratic society. And I believe that all people have certain basic human rights. That whether you are heterosexual, homosexual, transgender, or however you choose to identify yourself, you have the right to live without fear of being attacked or abused. That, that, that just should be common across the board. There should be no fear. People should be safe in their own homes. They should be able to commute to work and back from work without fear of what people might say or do to them. However, we must take a stand for God has ordained the historical definition of marriage to be between one man and one woman. That is how God made them. That is how it is supposed to be. One man, one woman. So the Pharisees are talking about divorce and Jesus takes you back to the beginning. He made Adam and Eve. There were no spare parts. He didn't make Eve and then take a few extra ribs out and have a few spare women in case it didn't quite work out with Eve. That wasn't how it was supposed to be. He had no other options. He made them one and one. So marriage is God's idea. Marriage is between man and woman. The third thing Jesus affirms about marriage is that it's God's plan to create oneness within marriage. Leaving, cleaving, weaving. You leave your mother and father. You leave your, your childhood home. You form and establish a new relationship, a new home, a new family. The idea of cleaving means to be glued together. You come together to form one. Sometimes you hear people, whenever they're unhappy in their marriage, they might say, I feel trapped in my marriage. I feel so stuck. Good. You're supposed to be stuck. That's the idea. You're supposed to cleave. Now, I hope it's a good sense of stuck, not a bad sense of stuck. But that's the idea of the word. You are glued. You are stuck together by God to form a new family. The two shall become one flesh. That's God's maths. One plus one equals one. And so in the story of God's romance, the, um, uh, the, 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 the story begins in the first chapter where the hero and the heroine die and become one. A new person is created. Jesus then goes on to say that there's a fourth component to the original design of God's marriage. It was designed to be permanent. Let no man separate what God has joined together. 
you have not joined us together, you do not have the right to separate it. God has blessed us. God has ordained that. That's why the marriage ceremony is so important. That's why the vows are very serious. So whatever your view is of marriage, whatever your view of divorce is, I need to explain to you that God has a very high view of marriage. It's to be permanent. It's a lifelong commitment. Divorce is not part of the original blueprint, even though he does permit it under certain circumstances. The Pharisees coming here in Matthew 19 have focused in on one little word, one little phrase in Deuteronomy 24. They make a big deal about it, and they build their entire thinking and their entire theology around what they thought the word indecent means. Yet they ignored the verses and verses and verses elsewhere. Convenient Bible study technique to get whatever you wanted. It's a very dangerous way of looking at the Scripture. And Jesus goes back to the beginning to show God's intention of one flesh. So therefore, uh, you know, for a guy to say, right, well, I'm dumping my wife. I'm getting rid of her because we're going through some problems. It's hard. It's inconvenient. It's, it's um, uncomfortable in our home. That's like a guy saying, I'm going to cut off my leg because I've got a bruise. I've got a splinter. I've got a sprain. There are other ways to deal with the pain than amputation. It takes us to a third characteristic of divorce. It's not just practical. It's not just biblical. It is controversial. Verse 7, they say, they hear what Jesus has to say, and so they kind of go, oh, well, 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 Moses commanded it. Who are you to say? Moses commanded it, so it has to be okay because he is the giver of the law. Even though God's the giver of the law, but Moses is the authority. You can't say anything about Moses. And Jesus, basically, his response is, no, of course I'm not going to argue with Moses because Moses was in the right. You're the ones in the wrong. You see, you'll never find one command in all of Scripture for people to divorce. There is no command anywhere in Scripture, but what you do find multiple times is permission to divorce. You see, what has happened is they have twisted Scripture. They have made a divine concession into a divine command that it was never intended to be. By the way, that's a really good definition, a biblical definition of what divorce is. Divorce is a divine concession to human weakness. It's never a command. God created marriage, but man created divorce. And in certain cases, God will concede, he will permit a divorce to take place. We are imperfect people. We live in a broken world. Sometimes things happen, and so by God's goodness and grace, he permits it. He says, okay, maybe it's better for things to, to, se- to separate. Malachi 2.16 is maybe not a passage you read an awful lot, but in Malachi 2, the Lord, the God of Israel, says that he hates divorce and him who covers his garment with violence doesn't hate people who are divorced, but he hates that process of tearing one back into two. He hates the process of turning your back on someone that you're supposed to be devoted to. He hates the callousness that's involved. He hates the bitterness that's involved. He hates the tears that are involved. 
That's why it goes on in the same verse. Uh, it goes in the same verse with violent people because he hates and the mistreatment of people by other people who should be loving them, who should be caring for them. And God hates it whenever that love turns into bitterness. He says, I hate divorce. I hate this happening. But he also says, but I understand why it has to happen. Something that, that's important about Deuteronomy 24 it is what it's really trying to teach us. It's not talking about divorce as such. Let me, let me tell you what I think these verses in Deuteronomy 24 are really talking about. It's not talking about adultery, okay? Remember that really extreme view uh, uh, initially? Uh, it can only be divorce and, and, adult, uh, and adultery only. The thing is, I don't think it can be that because when you go through Scripture, what's the punishment for adultery? It's not divorce. The punishment for adultery in, in, in those ancient times was, was death. It was a capital punishment. Remember in John, whenever they bring the woman who's caught in adultery before Jesus and they're getting ready to pick up the stones, they're not saying, we have to divorce this woman. They're saying, we have to kill her because that's the law. So it can't be adultery because there was a very specific punishment that we know what was set out for adultery. So it has to be something different. So whatever, the whatever uncleanness is supposed to mean, it must have been some infraction that falls short, that is lesser than actual adultery. The scope is wider for divorce than just adultery. Some impurity, some promiscuity perhaps. We're not told what it is which is why it's very dangerous to start guessing, as educated as your guess might be. But in reading Deuteronomy 24 and all those verses, I think here's what the vibe of it is. If there is a husband who is using any excuse just to divorce his wife and, and break in people's hearts, and he is uncaring, he is callous, he is cold, he is selfish, I think these verses are saying, once he lets that woman go, she has the right to be free from him forever. All right? He loses any claim on her. He can't just bring her back in again and say, I'm going to marry you again. And then repeat this process over and over again. It's about protecting the rights of the woman. In a world where the people were thinking uh, unclean, undecent, happy days, I can discard and bring other women in as, as, as easily as I want. I can do what I want. And they're going to live in fear because they won't oppose me because I'll just divorce them. This text, I believe, is not advocating divorce. It's not about making it easy. It's not about saying what can or cannot happen for a divorce to take place. I believe that this is about protecting the woman from her first husband. And it was a law given by God to protect the woman because divorce was so common. So in the context of rampant divorce, God says, no, no, no. We need to protect the vulnerable elements here. We need to protect the victims who are being mistreated and abused by their husbands. Not here is a reason to do it or not a reason to do it. We need to protect the vulnerable. We need to protect the victim. So in challenging Jesus, these Pharisees in Matthew 19 are neglecting the one thing that God really wants to do with the text. 
The Pharisees want to use it to exploit women. God wants to use it to protect women. So it's a practical issue. It's a biblical issue. It's, it's a controversial issue. And, uh, you know, you maybe don't need me to tell you that. But fourth and finally, divorce is a moral issue. Verse 8. Now Jesus now is uh, re- rebutting their rebuttal. Uh, they say, oh, but Moses says, <laughs> no, but I say. But I say. And that's really the, the heart of it. Moses said, yeah, okay. But listen to what I'm saying. Because I'm the authority. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not. So I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality and marries another, commits adultery. Here's the core of Jesus' teaching in these verses. It's the exception clause. And maybe you've heard about this before and you've heard sermons about it before. The exception clause is no divorce except. Okay, that, that's what it means, the exception clause. No divorce and under any circumstances except. And what Jesus says here is sexual immorality. That's the exception clause. Now, the word in the Greek is porneia. It's a word that describes a wide variety, a wide range, a wide range of sin under that category. It's wider than just adultery because it, that was a capital punishment. And, and the way the verb is written indicates it is, an, it is a repeated, unrepented, ongoing pattern of behavior. Pornea. So it's not a one-off thing. It's a continued pattern of unrepented behavior. That, in this passage, is the only allowable reason for a Christian to initiate a divorce. You may be unable to stop your spouse from initiating it. That's a different matter. But you, as a believer, should not initiate it unless they are refusing to change this pattern of sinful behavior, pornea. Now, I'm going to read you another passage that's powerless. It's the same book. It's Matthew. And, and so there's, there's a consistency here. Um, the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody loves the Sermon on the Mount. I speak to people who are not saved, and they say, oh, I love the Sermon on the Mount. I live my life by the Sermon on the Mount. Kind of looking at them going, really? Do you? You sure? Have you read it? Really? Because on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said to the Pharisees and the common people, he said, you have heard it said, it has been said by those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you lost after another woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. So here's how we approach it. This is what you have heard, Jesus saying to them. You have heard it from Shami, you've heard it from Hillel, you've heard it from these different rabbis and all the different interpretations of your system that all you need is that if it's legal in the law of the land, in the courts of men, then by definition it should be okay with God. Because hey, it's legal, it should be accepted. But I say, and he gives the exception, the Pharisees are in the crowd, they're priding on themselves on the fact that, well, you know, I've never committed adultery, even though they've left many, many women heartbroken and homeless in their wake. They're divorced several times for whatever reason. That, you know, they salted their food too much, burnt their toast, made, served them cold coffee. And Jesus nails them on this. 
you guys are priding yourselves that you have never sinned, that you are clean and honest and upright, but you know what? You're lusting after women, and you divorce your wives for whatever reason because of your lust, and you're treating them without value and respect. You're treating these women like trash, and that's not on. You see, God says you have a horrible understanding of what a marriage should be, of what that relationship should be. You need a higher view of what marriage is, of what that relationship should be, and then you'll have a better understanding of the role that divorce has to sometimes play in society. God's plan for marriage was to reveal love and commitment and devotion and to make people thrive. And his permission to divorce is given to protect the most vulnerable people in that marriage, not to trap them in that marriage. I hope you understand the difference there. Jesus isn't trying to trap people in difficult, hard circumstances. The teaching is there to protect those who are vulnerable. Let me give you one final thing as we finish. To those who are specifically feeling the weight of this this morning, and maybe some of this was really not what you wanted to hear, you wanted a different sermon, I told you I'm unapologetic. But maybe you're crushed under the weight of a divorce for whatever reason. Maybe you were unfaithful in the relationship and you're dealing with regret and remorse and shame, embarrassment. Or maybe you're going through one right now. Or maybe you are just the victim. All right? And listen, I, 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 I don't really subscribe to this idea of, well, if he had an affair, it must have been your fault somehow. No, no, listen, that doesn't excuse that behavior. So if someone else has broken the covenant law, if someone else has broken the divorce and you're standing there wondering what on earth has happened, I want you to know something. God understands exactly what you're going through. And I want to encourage you to let forgiveness rule the day. You have come to the right person. You've come to the right place this morning. You've, he specializes in forgiving. And you say, oh, well, well, divorce is a sin. Yeah, that's why it's forgivable. That's why God can forgive it. That's why it can be washed under the blood of Christ because there is no sin greater than the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why it's forgivable. But does that mean, oh, well, let's get divorced and then we can apologize because God will forgive us? Well, no. Remember the verse in Romans that says, what, shall we sin all the more so that grace can abound all the more? No, of course not. That's not how we operate. The reason that God speaks so strongly about divorce is because he was divorced. I don't know if you ever thought about God being a divorcee before. That's exactly what he is. When you go into the Old Testament and read the books of Hosea and Jeremiah in particular, they speak of Israel being an unfaithful wife. And they were given the message that God has given her as a nation a certificate of divorce. God is a divorcee. His bride has been unfaithful. So he understands the pain of a broken marriage. 
he understands. And if you have failed, if you have sinned, understand the meaning of the name of Jesus that we celebrate. Remember what the Christmas angel said? You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's what he's about. He forgives sin. And he brings hope to those who are struggling and hurting and in compassion. He can say to you this morning, I understand what you're going through. I've been where you have been. And just in case there's some hardliners in here who are going to lining up the emails and the texts for me this week. And say, Jeff, you need to be harder on this. I'm going to read you a story. Uh, of a young boy who has rich parents. And let me just tell you the story. He said one night his father got a call informing him that a well-known Christian in the church was passed out on the pavement drunk. Immediately his father sent his chauffeured limousine to pick up the man. Meanwhile, his mother prepared the guest room and the boy watched as she turned down the beautiful coverlets revealing the monogrammed sheets on the exquisite old four-poster bed. But mother, he said, he's drunk. He's going to be sick all over these fine things. I know, his mother said. But this man has slipped and fallen. When he comes to, he will be so ashamed. He will need all the loving encouragement that we can give him. Let me suggest. Any divorced person that you know needs all the love and encouragement that you can give them. If they have fallen down, whether they have caused it or are the victim of it, they need love and encouragement and a hand up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, not all of us really know the pain of a broken marriage. We have maybe seen it in our parents. We have maybe seen it in our children. We've maybe seen it in our siblings or friendship circle. But maybe we don't all fully know what it really is like to go through it. Yet we come to a God this morning who understands all our trials and all our pains and all our sufferings. God, thank you that there's someone here who understands Lord, I pray for the marriages of our church. Strengthen them. Help help to identify and resolve and work through the issues that are at the heart of the problems. Lord, may we be quick to change and slow to simply just demand that other people change. Lord, for those who are going through this, horrible process of divorce that divides and hurts and wounds and festers. Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort. You would bring healing. Lord, where there is a need for forgiveness, Lord, bring that. Where there is a need for restoration, bring that where there is a need to forgive others, bring that. 
Lord, that whatever has gone on in our past, Lord, may you wash us, renew us, make us clean. We pray that we would be the kind of people who seek to love and build up and restore rather than judge, rather than gossip, rather than kicking people while they're down. Lord, that we would be those who would be down there and picking them up. And so, Lord, we pray that we might be like you in this regard. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'm going to ask Scott and the